0: Just to give you, an, and this, by the way, is coming out of a project funded by the Media Trust, which I'm conducting uh, on data protection and the open society. So just to give you a bit of an overview of what I'm planning to do, I know most of you are already data protection experts, but I think it's useful to begin thinking conceptually why there is this tension between data protection and free speech. So I'll start off by looking at that. And then I'll outline this pan-European Union reconciliation or or seeming European consensus as to what was agreed when the directive was formed. And you see that principally in Article 9 of the Directive and also in some of the recitals. And that will move on to what I hope is, in a way, the most interesting and enlightening part of the talk, which is quantified figures on the actual both the strength of the exemption, how how far it goes from ordinary data protection law, and the scope of the exemption in each European economic area state. And I I hope the data will show pretty conclusively that currently in the law, there's vast divergences uh, as as to where European countries are at. Now, that will then lead to two different um, avenues. On the social scientific level, I'll briefly explore what I see as the key drivers uh, social scientifically in that particular outcome. But maybe more interestingly for this conference, I'll close with a few conclusions on where I think we should go in Europe to find a better and more coherent revolution uh, with, with the regulations that are drafted now. So what is data protection? Well I see it as a legal regime which regulates the processing of personal information with an aim of preventing the misuse of that information. And the key thing here which produces an interaction, at least with freedom of expression, the right to impart information and ideas uh, without interference, is because of the breadth of those two uh, first um, words or, or phrases, processing and personal information. So personal information maybe not in this country that is a ruling such as future out ruling, but certainly in both European countries can be defined extremely broadly as literally any information that relates to a, a identified or identifiable individual, possibly even the dead, and um, certainly seemingly including quite innocuous public domain data. It's even being suggested that the name and author of a book title might want personal data of of the author in some countries. So very, very broad personal information, potentially. And processing, also very, very broad, at least when something touches the computer, which everything does on the internet, that then you're processing. So clearly, very, very many forms of free speech involve either directly personal information or at least information which has been derived from data which one stage was personal. Current key framework, as Professor Lombardi said, is, is the directive drawn up in 1995. And what it does is it generally requires adherence to system broad principles and specific rules. So in thinking of a conceptualised or quantified approach to this, I think it's important to sort of break down those principles and laws into the core elements of data protection, which is what, what I've done here. What do I think makes up currently data protection law? Well, I think four things really, the original data protection principles, which are quite broad and open textured usually, they're fairness, lawfulness, compatibility, um, and the presumption of access to resources. But then there's some quite specific rules relating to particular aspects of that. One of them being the presumption that data subjects will be notified of uh, data processing, both proactively, particularly when information is being collected directly from them, and retroactively in terms of subject access. So that's been an important element of the regime. And another important element of the regime are uh, a much, much more onerous regime, A whole category of data which are deemed sensitive or special. And we're talking racial and ethnic origin. Some people are saying it includes telephotography, and there's all that state going on. Uh, criminality, health data, these sorts of categories. Whereas the data subject having themselves put the information in the public domain, there really is a presumption that this is a consent-based regime and under the regulation, possibly even a rescindable consent-based regime. Finally, there are some other elements that I think are important enough to include in their own category, but they're a bit of a mixture. The presumption currently that data controls will register with the regulator, the presumptive ban on exporting data outside the European economic area, and the need for a legitimising condition for any processing of personal data. Now, on the previous slide, I said that because of the broad potential definitions, there was indeed an interaction with free speech. I hope you can now see with the sort of overus nature of what, generally speaking, processing of personal data must be like, there is a clear tension with free speech, uh, at least in the general regime. And so you may be relieved to know that, obviously, the regime does balance that with some specific derogations and exemptions for particular processing purposes. And, and the one which is relevant here is, is the one for public expression. So what does this one say? Well, Article 9 is up there uh, before you. It originally only provided a, an optional opt-out for member states, and specifically only an optional opt-out for journalism or the press and audiovisual media. Um, And it seemingly provided a very, very broad discretion to to member states. And some important changes happened between 1990, when the original directive was drawn up, and 1995, when it was finalized, in the sense that the exemption for freedom of expression became mandatory. It was broadened for journalism to also encompass art and literature, although, whether solely artistic, journalistic, and literary expression covers the necessary real freedom of expression is an interesting and still wise one and equally it was further stressed that this wasn't some sort of carte blanche for members states to do whatever they wanted in this area it was a a, a balanced regime where exemptions should only provided be provided if they were necessary to reconcile sort of equally fundamental rights and, and that that was made fairly clear in some of the uh, recitals which are put into the directive, including the one I put up, which does explicitly state that, they, that the exemption should only be necessary, those necessary for the purpose of balance between fundamental rights. So you might think that was a, a fairly neat compromise, quite a broad scope, a mandatory exemption, but very much a balanced exemption, the one which wouldn't, you know, provide extremes on either side. In terms of what actually happened when transposition took place, this now turns to my quantified scores. What you can do, and I have done, is code every single data protection provision as to whether the member state is or isn't, in the formal law at least, providing an exemption from that provision for freedom of expression, at least some type of freedom of expression. And then amalgamate those scores into those core elements which I talked about earlier in order to sort of conceptually provide an appropriately balanced approach to this. And finally, weighing those equally to divide those overall score for each country. Do we see some great European consensus as Article 9 might suggest? Well, unfortunately not. Um, this is a decile graph which shows where countries are arrayed along providing almost no exemptions freedom of expression through Dubai providing almost no exemption to freedom of expression. And although we find 20% of countries are indeed thought about some sort of European consensus in the United States, a whole 40% of countries at both ends of this spectrum are right at the extreme, either in 20% of cases providing almost no data protection in the area, or at least in the formal law, providing no protection to freedom of speech, one of the very onerous regimes. in in, in this kind of situation. And you can see actually in the other textiles, there's no real evidence that there's a consensus there. It's not just the extreme, the 40%, it is also some of the rest as well. And, you know, these are, by the way, provisional scores, and they will will probably change as as I try and decline this uh, further. Um, I think that at the the moment, they may be, uh, anyway this is a work in progress but I think you can see by the way you can put almost a line through that the access to the consensus but also when you start looking at what those countries are and where they're ranking in, in this chart I think you can begin to see some interesting social um, issues coming up which is that legal and cultural family within Europe is very very important there's a huge coalescing of country they're not a coalescing of in the whole European economic area, or the EU. Almost all Northern European countries are right up at the top, providing almost the full to of speech. And almost all the Southern and Eastern European countries are right at the bottom, providing very little protection for freedom of, of, of expression. Um, and we can we can look at this more adherence from the social scientific point of view by. Putting these countries formally into those groups. And this box chart shows what you get, which is um, this shows the average, this shows 75 different this planted. The country getting the same thing at the same time. And in fact, this shows the extreme as the, 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 the chart up. But what, what I hope you can see is that if you're in Northern Europe, you're likely to have a 92% exemption, as i quantified it, from data protection to free speech. If you're in Eastern Europe, at least in your formal law, it's 14%. And okay, it's 42% in Southern Europe. Because of the degree of overlap and small sample size, the difference between Southern and Eastern Europe isn't statistically significant. But the difference between Northern Europe and the rest is hugely statistically significant and really does seem to be at the social scientific level, what's driving the outcome. So what about the scope of the delegation? It's simpler here because it relates just to a single dimension, you know, are you providing the exemption just the, journalist and I, just the journalism? Are you journalism literature art? Are you going beyond? And we just, again this is very critical data, but a rare country and I put it on a sixth work scale, as to whether their formal law seeks to go beyond this JLA trilogy treat the JLA trilogy equally, not, by the way, self-evidently required by the directive, but in any case, um, possibly what the directive need to be moving towards. Or whether it privileges journalism in some way, and finally gets to the three countries, which provide no exceptions normally at all in terms of consent of analysis, as well as, the as, 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 you know, as limited instances this final sorry, this is this is what you get. Evidence of a bit more consensus here in the sense that almost the majority of countries are treating journalism literature and arts equally, and only one country, Sweden, is very clearly frequent to go beyond that trilogy to just protect freedom of expression in and itself. But an almost equally greater number of countries in various ways from all exemptions only for journalism subject to of journalism. Is still preferring journalism in the North compared to other things of protected speech and the language so It does seem that there are different approaches there as well. And if we, this is a final scatter which kind of brings hopefully some of this all together. The Soviet derogations up here on the vertical axis and the dots are colour coded with Eastern Europe in and, and, and blue, Southern Europe in green. And northern Europe in red. And you find exactly the same uh, correlation here, in the sense that the scope of the derogation as well, if you're in southern and eastern Europe, you're likely to say the Germany. And if, if, if you're in northern Europe, you're likely to have, have the order of the scope. And we can see also, as I put the scope along here, there's a very clear correlation, positive correlation, between the scope and the sense of the derogation, something like 17% showing that it's not that you know countries have sort of said, OK, well we want a very, very, very um, narrow protection just for journalism, but we want to make it very strong because it's narrow. It's the precise opposite. If you're going to be a country which is offering a very uh, wide extension for data protection free speech, you're also going to be a country which wants to cover a much, much larger area. So this in a way further emphasizes, the divergent rather than the converging nature of the current regime, despite of having a, a, a director on matter within Europe, And that really leads to sort of my more policy conclusion, which are that I don't think that the current situation, particularly with the growth of the new technologies, with which I hope will be discussing in the conference, is. Sustainable. I think that it's unsustainably diverse, and I think that particularly those countries, 40% of countries, right of the extremes, are implementing something which even the current director has world well, did not envisage, and didn't consider appropriate. And we really need to consider why, you know, over 15 years on, um, yeah, uh, you know, this, 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 this is still the situation that we're in. But, I mean, the issue is becoming much, much more pressing because, both because the type of speech has become overwhelmingly internet-based and, and, and therefore, you know, the interaction with data protection is, is far from marginal. I mean, it probably wasn't even marginal in 1995, but it's absolutely essential now. There's always going to be an interaction with data protection free speech. But also because the nature of the internet is resulting in so much misuse of the personal information online, and we we need to come up with with, 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 with solutions to to some of the more egregious examples of that. And uh, touching on another point, which Professor Lombardi mentioned, is the transnational nature of the internet, that applicable laws become much, much more difficult to uh, determine, particularly within Europe, given the way in which we draw up applicable law and establishment or main establishment under the regulation. Uh, between the different European countries. And that might be okay if you only have marginal differences in, 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 in national laws or the national approaches. But here we're talking about chasms, and I think that, that is a highly uncertain environment for people to be operating in, and it doesn't really do fair either to people who want to engage in freedom of expression or to people who want to have proper data protection and, and privacy rights. So, sort of my final point is a plea that during this important process of data protection review, we, and maybe this is a role for for us as an audience, as much as the European Commission itself, ensure that there really is a very robust debate on these testing matters, so we can come up with a more consistent framework in the future. Thank you.